This morning, though, we're going to finish up in the book of Revelation with Revelation chapter 1. And we're going to start reading in verse 1, and we're going to read down through about verse 8 as we get started here. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha And the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for men like Hudson Taylor and Frank Houghton and many thousands and thousands more whose name we don't know, but who have been used by you to take the good news of Jesus Christ to the world God, we pray right now as a group here in this place gathered together to rejoice and worship you. God, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are gathered around the world, many of whom, because of time zones, will gather in a few hours or gathered a few hours ago. God, many of them gathering under a lot of persecution and opposition. God, we pray that in those gatherings that your spirit would bring strength and peace and hope. And God, I thank you for those who you call out as missionaries to cross cultural boundaries and national boundaries. God, thank you for the work that you're doing in China even to this day. God, we see on the news the opposition and persecution that is still there But God, we also hear the stories of incredible movements of your spirit among the church in those locations and many others. God, would you call us by your word this morning to live on mission for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So as we've been looking at the book of Revelation for the last three weeks leading up to this week, remember that the word revelation, it's not plural, And you all have done amazing at that. You've stopped me many times in the hallways or places you've seen and said, I don't add the S to it anymore. That's great. So it's just revelation. It's revelation singular. But that revelation, the word revelation means an unveiling or or revealing. We're able to see something that we couldn't see otherwise. And to illustrate that, we've used different types of music. So the first week we use rap music. 
Rap music is that anti-institutional music that uses a lot of symbolic imagery, and rap music is really probably the best way I know to describe or illustrate the book of Revelation, how it works. The second week, (laughs) we used Prince. Got to tell you, I felt a little responsible (laughs) this past week uh, about, about Prince's death, and so... We use Prince, and specifically that 1999 uh, song and album to illustrate what it looks like to live as worshipers and to know that there's more than just this life. Then we use Bob Dylan. You got to serve somebody. Worship, service, and then this week we were able to redeem the whole thing, and we use that beautiful song from the Gettys about missions. When you sum it up, And we're going to talk about this more next week. But when you sum up the book of Revelation and you sum up what it means to be God's people, we worship, we serve, and we go on mission. And all three of those are meant to fit together. All three of those integrate. Everybody worships something. Everybody serves something or somebody. And everyone is on mission for some reason, for some purpose. The question is, who do we worship? Who do we serve? And for whom are we on mission? And this morning, we may not think about the book of Revelation as a missions book. It's probably not the first thing that comes to mind as missions when you think about Revelation. But it is the greatest call to mission that we will find in Scripture. And it it matters that, that God's word ends in that way. And before we get too far into this morning, you may think, you know what? I'm I'm really not a missionary. It's just not who I am. I seek to be a Christian. I seek to live for the Lord, but, I, but I'm just really not a missionary that crosses cultural bounds. Charles Spurgeon said that every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. And that's kind of strong language, maybe not language we would always use, but every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. This morning, my prayer is that God would take wherever you are right now in life, and he would call you in a fresh way to live on mission to live on purpose, to live with a direction for your life that you would be driven to share the goodness of Jesus Christ with people around you and that the Lord at the same time might call out from among us people who are going to cross national boundaries or ethnic boundaries or some sort of boundary for the spread of the gospel, whether that's a teenager or an adult or a senior adult, but that we would see in the book of Revelation a call to mission. If you want to turn your uh, bulletin over, there's some notes that we have on the back of the bulletin to guide us through our time. And there at the top, well, the top of the notes, kind of a third of the way down the, the back of the bulletin, in bold print, mission is driven by vision. That's our guiding thought this morning. Mission is driven by vision. If we are going to live on mission, it's because we have a vision of something. Here's what we found to be true in church. Nonprofits have found this to be true. Businesses have found this to be true. People give themselves to vision, not need or guilt. So if you're in church and you need a Sunday school teacher or you need some more money or you need somebody to do something, you can make that need known and try to guilt people into it. And you might get somebody to give some time or give some money. But we are made by God to really give ourselves to something, to be on mission when we catch a vision of something. If someone catches a vision of what it looks like to teach fourth grade Sunday school, 
and they see what it is to shape a kid's life week after week, they're going to give themselves to that mission because they have a vision of what that looks like. If they feel guilted into it, they're probably going to go halfway, feel tired all the time, not sure if they're really into it. What I want you to see from the book of Revelation is when you catch a vision of something, it will drive you to be on mission. So let's start out. Verse 7. Verse 7 says, Behold, so look, pay attention, behold, he is coming with the clouds. The first vision that we get here in these two verses, the first vision is a vision of Christ coming. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. This language here, that he is coming with the clouds, makes us think of a couple of different things. If you go back to the beginning of the book of Acts, which if you're not familiar with the New Testament, Acts is the fifth book that you'll find in the New Testament. If you go to Acts chapter 1, you'll find that as, as Jesus is leaving this earth and is going up to be with the Father to reign as king, he goes up and he goes up in clouds. And it says there that he will return in the same way. It's picking up on that language. But even beyond that, the language that John is using here in Revelation 1-7, the language he's picking up on, comes from Daniel. And we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, but Daniel chapter 7 is where John is drawing from. Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 13, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and, and this first vision of Revelation, there's a ton of correspondence there to what Daniel's talking about. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Son of man is another phrase that we saw a couple of weeks ago in the book of Revelation. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one so that he shall not, it shall not be destroyed. What's going on here is when John says, behold, he is coming with the clouds, it's picking up on the fact that he's talking about the victorious Messiah. He's talking about the one that Daniel prophesied who would come and would bring God's kingdom in a way that God's kingdom would never end, would never be destroyed. He's talking about, ultimately, Jesus Christ. And so he's giving us this picture of Jesus coming in victory. Revelation chapter 19 paints a similar picture. Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 2. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. All right, here's something that happens. When this language from Daniel and this language that we find about Jesus as the coming Messiah, as the one who has come victorious, it comes with two sides to the coin. One side of the coin is salvation, and the other side of the coin is judgment. Jesus' is coming means salvation for those who believe, who are worshiping him, and judgment for those who are opposed to him. And so as we think about this, and we get this vision of Christ's coming, both his first coming and his second coming, remember, it's two-sided. It's two sides of the same coin, salvation and judgment. 
There's a great set of verses that pick up on this in the Gospel of John. John chapter 3, verses 17 through 18. These are the verses we don't memorize after John 3.16. We memorize John 3.16, we get those down, but verses 17 and 18 we don't talk about as much. John chapter 3, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of of the only Son of God. This idea that Jesus came to bring salvation and to bring vindication and that those who are opposed to him who do not believe in him already stand under judgment, under condemnation. This vision of Jesus, who he is as Savior and Judge, who he is coming on the clouds, who he is as the prophesied Messiah, is a vision that should drive us to mission Because it reminds us that his salvation is great and his judgment is true. And if we believe those two things, that he is coming and able to bring true and perfect salvation, and that he's able to also bring true and righteous judgment against those who are opposed to him, that will drive us to be on mission. Sometimes, if you're like me, and I have to just be completely honest about how sometimes I feel about about sharing our faith, Sometimes we don't want to share our faith because we say, I don't want to be judgmental. Or I don't want to judge someone else. In 2016, this is very famous language. Uh, Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 has probably passed John 3.16 as the most famous verse in the world. Matthew 7.1, judge not lest you be judged. Most people, even if they don't have a religious, spiritual desire in their body, know that verse, judge not lest you be judged. And so we say, you know what? I really feel awkward talking to people about faith or talking to people about spiritual things. We were talking to the seventh and eighth grade girls this morning about this. Where do these spiritual conversations come up? Where do you have these faith conversations? And we feel weird having these conversations because we don't want to judge someone. John chapter 3 verses 17 through 18 sets us free from that because what it says is that if someone is apart from Christ, judgment is already there. We don't have to judge anybody. We shouldn't judge anybody because that's not our job to begin with. That's not the message we come with. That's a reality of what it's true for all of us if we're separated from Christ. But if you're worried about sharing your faith with a family member or sharing your faith at work or sharing your faith with somebody you run into because you don't want to be judgmental, let John chapter 3 verse 17 through 18 set you free. Because that is not our job. Our job is we see this vision of Christ coming and we say, I want someone to experience that salvation. I want someone to experience that hope. I want someone to experience that healing, to know what it is to worship God and to be set free from the fear of sin and the fear of death. And so it's salvation and judgment and we are called to make that salvation known. So that's the first vision. We have a vision of Christ coming. The second vision goes back to verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Okay, first thing before I get distracted by this. 
You know that on my PowerPoints, I really like to use red and blue and green and purple. I've had multiple conversations over the last couple of weeks that we have several colorblind folks uh, in, in Emmaus. So all of my use of this pretty color just goes completely unappreciated uh, and even undetected. If it would have just been one person, I wouldn't have thought it was a big deal. But we have a sweeping colorblindness issue in, in, in Emmaus. And so here's my new strategy. I'm not only using red, but I'm going to bold face, bold font the words that are getting attention. And so hopefully that and some underline will help alleviate our, our issues that we run into. But notice the words that are, are highlighted. Every eye, all tribes. The vision we get here is a vision of everyone seeing this, everyone being involved. We're going to call it in a second the global perspective. But what John is doing here is he's picking up on some verses from the book of Zechariah. I know that's an Old Testament book that we can't find, we don't read very often. But it was a famous book in terms of prophecies of the Messiah and how God would work among his people. Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. The prophecy here is that I will pour out, this is the Lord speaking, I will pour out on the house of David David, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. And then look at this language. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. Now you can hear the language there that corresponds to what we saw in Revelation chapter 1 verse 7. But notice what Zechariah does right after this. Zechariah chapter 13 verse 1. Listen to this language here. On that day when the Lord pours this out and and, and we see him in this way, on that day... There shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do what? To cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Notice who the promise is given to here at the beginning of verse 1, of 13. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David. Earlier in Zechariah 12 verse 10, it was also focused on, on the house of David, on Jerusalem. What John does is John takes... The promise from Zechariah of salvation and cleansing, of how we will look on the Lord and either we will mourn because we're separated from him or we will mourn in repentance that drives us to salvation. We will look on him, but what John does is he says it won't just be the house of David, it won't just be Jerusalem, it will be every eye and it will be all people. He's tapping into this idea that you find in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. We're not going to look at those verses in particular because of time, but you get the same idea going on in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 where you have these promises that God makes of salvation and then these promises begin to open up and you find out that they're for all people in all places at all times. It becomes this global perspective. Revelation has two of the most beautiful passages you'll find anywhere in the New Testament that describe this global vision, this global perspective. Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 10. And then we're going to go over to chapter 7 here in just a second. But, but John, 
as he's giving this revelation and he says, every eye will see and all people will look on him. We find out it's this global perspective and then you see a picture of this twice in Revelation. Revelation chapter five, verses nine through 10. They sing a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And then listen to chapter seven. Chapter seven, the same set of verses, nine and 10. Chapter seven, nine through 10 of Revelation. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is a beautiful global perspective that God's salvation and God's judgment doesn't just pertain to one group of people in one location. It's for all people in all places at all times, which means and we always have to be cautious about this. Revelation isn't a book for the United States. It's not a book for communist Russia. It's not a book for the Catholics or the Jews or any group of people that finds themselves living in a particular place at a particular time. Revelation is for all of us. And it's a revelation that means salvation for those who turn to the Lord and judgment for those who turn against him. And it gives us this perspective that this matters to everybody. This pertains to everybody. We talk about sharing our faith, and we talk about the way that Christianity is perceived in our culture. A lot of people are opposed to Christianity, they're opposed to church, they're opposed to Jesus because they say that it's so exclusive. Like, you say that Jesus is the only way to be made right with God, how exclusive is that? How can you be so narrow-minded, so bigoted to say that? But my response is it's kind of twofold. One Everybody, if you press hard enough, is exclusive in some way. They have some thinking that they believe that everyone else should adopt. So it's not a Christian thing, it's a human thing. But more than that, the argument, or not the argument, but just the plea that we would make back to that person who says that we're bigoted and exclusive and narrow-minded is in fact Christianity's most inclusive religion that you will find anywhere. It's the most inclusive opportunity for salvation because you don't have to work your way into it. You don't pay your way into it. You're not born into it. You don't have to do anything other than to say, Lord, without you, I have no hope. I'm a sinner. I've rebelled against you, but I trust in Jesus Christ that he did for me what I could never do for myself. And it's a message that pertains to every person, no matter their background, no matter who you are, where you've come from today, no matter any person we can find on the planet, that same message is there for them. A man named Nathan Finn has a great quote that's on your, uh, your bulletin there. He says, if the message you preach isn't good news for every person from every tribe, ton, and nation, then it isn't the real gospel. Here's the beauty of the gospel, here's the beauty of revelation, is that the message is for everyone. You have people in your life, I have people in my life, that if I was honest, 
I would say something like, that person would never be a Christian. That person would never turn to the Lord. That person has no interest in church or God or religion or anything to do with it. And if we're not careful at that point, we put that person outside the reach of God's love and the reach of God's salvation. Or that person lives in that place separated from the things of the Lord. They can... The beauty of Revelation is that every eye will look on him. And our hope is that they will look on him and find salvation, that we would know that the gospel is good news for every person in every place. So there's a historical vision, there's a global vision, and then we're going to end up here with this one. Number three, we're going to talk about a cosmic vision. Verse eight, I am the Alpha and the Omega. So back to Revelation chapter one. Revelation chapter one, verse eight. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was, or who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. In, in John's day, John who wrote the book of Revelation, in John's day, if you were going to say someone was really great, one of the ways you would do that is you would string these titles together, you would string series of words together. This is like when you're trying to celebrate your spouse or your kids or somebody and you write out their name as an acrostic and then every letter of the name you try to think of something good to say about that person and at times like that that you're glad you didn't give your kids really long names because you're getting down in the name and you're like oh man Christopher there's a lot of letters in that. I hope I can think of a lot of good things to say about my kids. Um, this is the same idea that happened in the ancient world. If you were going to say that someone was really great, you didn't say one good thing about them. You had to stream together many great things about them. So when John says here in verse 8 that he is the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, He's using three ideas, that idea of three is a complete idea. He's using these three ideas to say that God is greater than anything else. There's nothing that can compare to his greatness, to his rule and and his reign. This idea here that he is the alpha and the omega, there are seven Greek vowels. Alpha is the first, omega is the last. Sometime uh, you can find ancient magic books, not Christian magic books, but, but ancient magic books from this time, and instead of writing out the God's name, they would write all seven of the vowels together, and that was meant to stand for the God's name. Alpha and Omega is a way of taking the first vowel and the last vowel and saying, and he takes care of everything else in between. He's the greatest that you will ever find. This word at the end, the word almighty, is a word that's a combination of of two smaller words, the word for all and the word for rule or to rule over. So almighty is one who rules over everything. A, a pantocrator is the word. Here's why that's such a big deal. You say, why, why belabor that point? The reason we belabor that point is because the Caesar of Rome, the, the emperor of Rome, was called the autocrator. The self-ruler, the one ruler. You, you, if uh, in school or different places in the media, you might have heard the term autocracy, a dictatorship, one where a self-rule happens. That's how the emperor in Rome was known. 
And so John comes along and says, you have an autocrator, we have a pantocrator. He rules by one, we have the one who rules over all. Our God's power can never be overcome. Listen to how Rome talked about their rule. I've got this quote from a man named Felix, uh, who was a writer in ancient Rome, and he talked about how the Rome, uh-oh, oh, there we go. Like he, he almost said nothing, but uh, the Romans' power and authority has occupied the circuit of the whole world. Thus, it has propagated its empire beyond the paths of the sun and the bounds of the ocean itself. In other words, Rome's power stretches as far as the eye can see, as far as you can imagine. When you're the ruler of the world, you get to draw the map. Now, it's going to be hard to see this map, but I want to show you a map here on the, on the screen, an ancient map. Don't worry about any of the words or anything like that. But as you look at it a little bit and you begin to find Rome, you find Rome right in the middle, maybe middle just a little bit below, but, but Italy is kind of down there uh, toward the bottom, toward the middle. Here's the point of that. When you're the emperor, when you're the one who rules, you draw the map so that you're at the middle, <laughs> so that everything is focused on you. What John is doing in the book of Revelation is he would have known people knew about this type of idea. They knew about this type of map. He's redrawing the map of the world. Don't miss that. In the book of Revelation, John is redrawing the map of the world for these people. And he's saying Rome is not at the middle. The emperor is not at the middle. I'll tell you who's at the middle. The Alpha and the Omega. The one who is and who was and who is to come. The one who is the Almighty, who rules over everything. He's giving them this cosmic perspective of God's greatness. And not just of God's power, But if you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, this means that you hold all of history together, that you have a plan and a purpose, that what God began at the beginning, he will bring to fruition at the end. That the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. That the one who called you is faithful and it's he himself who will do it. The God who is the Alpha and the Omega is the God who got things started and will bring them to their perfect end. This is what John is doing here in the book of Revelation. And the way he does it is he ties together Genesis and Revelation. As you read through the book of Revelation, you find tons of Genesis imagery in there. And it's on purpose. It's because John is showing us that the God who began things in Genesis is bringing them to perfect completion in Revelation. Genesis chapter 1 just give you one example of this. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And then he begins to name everything they have dominion over. God's purpose from the beginning of time is that he would create a people who would worship him, who would live for him, who would carry out his purposes in the world. Revelation chapter 22, verses 3 and 5. When you get to the completion of all things, no longer will there be anything accursed. Sin that sought to destroy God's plan will be gone. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in that place, and his servants will do what? They will worship him. 
servants worship, and then in verse five, and they will reign forever and ever. This is John's way at the end of Revelation to say that what God began, even though sin tried to derail that plan, he brought it to fruition. It happened the way that he said that it would happen. We can be on mission with God because he is going to bring his plan to completion. Sometimes you start working with someone, you start working with a company or a group of people, and you get in the middle of the project and you think, I don't think this is going to end well. I'm not sure that I should have gotten involved in this endeavor. I don't think I should have gotten on mission with these people because I don't like where things are headed. We never have to worry about that with the mission of God because we know where it's headed. We know that he is powerful to bring it to completion. And so we give ourselves to that mission, not because we're great and have something to contribute, but because we know he is great. And we have this cosmic perspective that said he has the power, he has the plan, and he's calling us to join him. There's two quotes here on your, on your bulletin that I want you to see about what does this matter for a church family. The first is from a man named Ed Stetzer that does some research and church planting work. He says, we are not a church with a mission. God has a mission with a church. Meaning, next week, when we begin to talk about who are we going to be as Emmaus, we don't have to make up something new. God is already on mission. God is already at work. The question is, do we join in that? Do we follow after him? Do we get involved in what the Lord is doing? And then the next quote, missions exist because worship does not. This takes us back to, to the beginning and kind of brings everything around here. The reason we live on mission the reason we make Christ known, the reason we point people to who God is and what he has done is because right now they are not worshiping him. Now they're worshiping something, every one of us. If you're here this morning and church isn't your thing, spiritual things really aren't of interest to you, the thing that we have in common is that we all worship something or someone. Missions exist because worship of the one true God does not exist in certain places or among certain people. And he has called us to join us, to not join us, but to join him in this mission so that all people would worship him. All people would know who he is. Now the question, as we come to kind of a conclusion, think about what our response is. If mission is driven by vision, then the way we live our lives and the things we give ourselves to will be determined by what we look at and how we look at it. What you set your focus on, what vision you look at will determine what we're on mission for. So how do we shape that vision? How do you shape a vision that is focused on the things of the Lord? I want to give you a couple of really profound things, okay? Mind-blowing things on your notes. We're going to go down to number two at this point. How do we change the way we see? Worship, prayer, scripture, church involvement, seeking to live a holy life by God's power. Now, everything in you, especially if you've spent quite a bit of time in church, everything in you should fight back against me with, come on, man, give us something different. Uh, just anything. Just throw something random in there that's different. You're telling me that the thing that will shape the way I live is if I worship the Lord, pray, 
read his word, get involved with his people, and seek to live a holy life. Yes, that, that's what I'm saying. I wish I could make it more complicated for us. I wish I could throw something random in there that was different. But our lives will be shaped by what we look at, by what we focus on, by how we see the world around us. And those things right there, worship, prayer, scripture, church, holy living, those are the things that will shape the way we see the world. Two questions for you. What circumstances in my life am I seeing in the wrong way? So God has you in a situation where our life, the way we live our life, is going to be determined by how we see the world around us. What circumstances in my life am I seeing the wrong way? Here's what I mean by that. God, why don't I have a job right now? God, why is a family member sick? God, why are my kids having trouble? Why is my marriage on the rocks? Why am I uncertain about what I need to do next in life? We have all these circumstances. Why do I live where I live? Why do I have the friends I have? All these things, all these circumstances. Do we see those as something that the Lord has put in front of us because he desires for us to be on mission in those situations? Here's my problem. Let me, let me just be blunt with you. I would be very good, I feel like, at being on mission for the Lord if I could determine the circumstances in which that mission happened. If that mission happened the way that I wanted the mission to happen, with the people I wanted to be there and the places I wanted, then, then Lord, I would give myself fully to it. But the reality is God is calling every one of us to be on mission right where he has put us right now. Think about your life. God has you there doing that on purpose right now because he wants you to see a global vision because he wants you to have a cosmic vision because he wants you to make his love known. And then finally, what people in my life am I seeing the wrong way? Who do you see as maybe a a roadblock or an annoyance or Lord, why have you put that person in my life? Why couldn't it have been somebody else? Maybe it's a relationship with a spouse or a relationship with a kid or a relationship with a coworker. Who in your life are you looking at through the, long, the wrong lens? That you don't find yourself on mission to care for them, you find yourself on mission to avoid them or on mission to get rid of them or on mission to do something other than share God's love with them. And he's saying, no, 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 I've given you a vision, a vision of a coming king, a vision of all people bowed before him in worship, a vision of a God who is over all and in all and through all. Everything that exists exists because of him and everything that exists exists for him. If we have that vision, it changes the way we see everything about the world. It shapes who we are as individuals. It shapes who we are as family. It shapes who we are as a church. My prayer for you, my prayer for me, my prayer for my family and this church is that we would have such an overwhelming vision of God that it would drive everything that we do in life. It would drive every dollar we spend, every moment we give to something, every piece of energy we have would be given to the mission of God. Let me pray for us, and we're gonna wrap up with a time of worship, a time of response here in just a second. Father, it's hard to do justice with, with words to the vision of what you've done 
in history through Christ, who he is, what it means for him to give his life for us, to be raised from the dead, to be exalted as king of kings and lord of lords. And that's not a message for people who grew up in a Christian home. It's not a message for people born in America or people who are of a certain race or background. That's for every person, every tribe and ton and nation and people. And the reason that matters is because you are the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and was and is to come. God, you are almighty. And we want to give our lives to something that counts. We want to give our church to something that counts. God, we want to be on mission. I pray, Father, that you would call us by your grace to view the world differently, to view our circumstances and the people around us. God, that you would call out teenagers to be on mission, families, senior adults. God, that we would give our life to you just as Hudson Taylor did 151 years ago standing on the shore thinking about the thousands of Christians gathered in churches and the millions of people who didn't know about that great God. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love that you are worthy of worship. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us now? We're gonna sing together. However God is working in your life, if he's calling you to be a part of a church on mission, we wanna talk with you about that. If he's calling you to live your life in a fresh way for him, we wanna pray with you. However we can serve you during this time. bow your head just for a moment as David continues to play and these folks are praying if you still need to come forward and have someone pray with you or you're just looking for an opportunity for a moment of reflection think about where God's placed you maybe it's a good chance to reflect on how the Lord's been at work in your life if you're here this morning and 
and you're not a Christian, but you're curious, you want to know more, you have a respect for the Lord, but you're just not sure about following after Him and being a worshiper, being called a Christian, I'd be honored at any time to talk with you more about that. I pray that God would continue to work in your life. Know that you're not a project for someone. You're a person who is loved and cared for. We love and care for one another as those who are created in God's image. Not judging, but bringing a message of hope and salvation. God, I pray for Emmaus that this would be a church on mission for you. Father, that we would give ourselves fully to you. Not because we feel guilty, not because that's what we're supposed to do, but because we see a vision of you that is so overwhelming, so powerful that we have to give ourselves to you. Father, would you do that work by your spirit and by your grace? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.